Hello, and welcome to the Radio Check Podcast, life in the concert touring industry, where we'll be speaking with and interviewing the best talent in the business, taking not only a deep dive into what it takes to put on a world-class show, but also life on the road and sharing experiences that span the globe, highlighting the people that are responsible for making your favorite artists look and sound great. My name is Matt Kanzi, and your host on this podcast is Chris Kanzi, a 40-year veteran in the live music touring industry. Over the years, Chris has traveled the globe several times over and has escalated through the ranks, bringing him to the top of his profession. He has established hundreds, if not thousands, of connections with other industry professionals, artists, and musicians. This podcast is your backstage pass to what happens behind the scenes and on the road when traveling and working with some of the world's top musicians. So sit back and enjoy. How are you, man? Good to see you. I'm good, Matt. Good afternoon to you. How's things? Oh, it's going well. Uh, The sun is setting here in Connecticut, and I've got about an inch or two of fresh pow snow on the floor, on the ground, so... You can see oh, it there, good. But... good for you, man. Oh, yeah, it's beautiful so... outside. It's it's yeah, a winter I'm, I'm wonderland. Oh, nice. It's a uh, it's been unseasonably warm down here. I mean, I've been I was outside today with shorts and a t-shirt. It was incredible. Oh goodness. Well, you know, part of but, me you know, I, I know I always talk about this when we start, but I'm I'm going to do it again. Uh, uh, I just you know again feeling encouraged about this this vaccine rollout seems to be improving going from going from uh you know you know non-existence to you know to happening you know so i'm, I'm you know I'm, feel, I'm feeling encouraged encouraged Excellent. yeah yeah well you know you sent me an email a bit earlier today on the covid mm-hmm. um you know that article that you know i guess uh, was uh, went through the wall street journal um and you know people in the industry looking to help with the distribution of the vaccine um what do you know yeah. I, I didn't have a chance to really dig into it but um how do you feel about that? Well, I mean, it, it, it started off with, you know, venues are, are offering uh, their spaces, you know, uh, venues that, you know, arenas, theaters, uh, you know, they're, they're uh, volunteering their spaces to, you know, set up triage centers or whatever, however you want to call them. Um, right. And then, you know, what it's trying to advance into is getting touring people involved as well in any way they can, you know. Mm whether roadies, techs, management, whatever, you know. Uh, I don't know where it's going to go from there. You know, I don't know how the Biden administration, you know, views our usefulness. <laughs> right. But, you know, uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll but see. I mean, it was a really good point. I mean, we've had a couple of guests, but one in particular, I can't recall which one. Um, but this clearly said, I mean, if you want to get something done, you want distribution of this vaccine. It's like, you know, hire somebody in the concert touring industry or hire people to do that because it's like, level of professionalism, the ability to kind of execute on something is second to none. And I couldn't agree more, but yeah. Well, you know, we, we have a different ethos, you know, most of the world, you know, at five o'clock they punch out and go home. You know, we don't have the, the luxury of doing that. We, we have to keep working because, you know, there's a yeah. show that night and then a loadout in another city to get to. So, you know, our work never ends, you know, and so that, that, that drive is in us, you know, yeah, absolutely. It's like, you know, the times I've been on the road injured and sick and, you know, there's no option. There's no calling out. You, you got to get the job done. And so you're right. The ethos and the mindset that's developed in this industry um, to get the job done regardless is is pretty damn strong. I can't think of any other industry that's like that. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Very unique but, people. Yeah. 
okay, well, cool. Hopefully something will come from that. But um, so to kind of move on and get the show on the road here, uh, this is awesome because I, I, I've met this guy a few times, our, our guest for the day. And uh, I've only heard stories, you know, and about some of his, uh, you know, other things that have gone on in his life and the things that, you know, his travels around the world. But so I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So why don't you let our listeners know who we got today? This should be exciting. Yeah, today is a, a man, I know, a really seasoned vet who's worked with me a lot. I was counting the amount of tours we did together earlier today, and we found 11 tours together, which is pretty impressive. Uh, today, uh, security professional Todd Fox. Hi, Todd. Hey, Chris. How you doing, buddy? I'm good. Welcome. Thanks for coming on. You know, I, I know you and I have been talking about you doing the podcast for a while. You know, I you know, I explained to you that we're trying to get people from all parts of the industry and, you know, management and, you know, techs and, you know, lighting, sound, video, whatever. And, uh, and, I, and I feel that your department is just as important uh, as anybody else's, you know, and I really would love to, you know, not only talk about yourself and your history a little bit, but, you know, talk about security in general. And in 2020, 2021, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's become really, really, uh, a prominent part of how we do business and, uh, and um, you're the best, you know, and uh, that's why I like working with you. And, you know, not only, not only that, we're, you know, we've become very good friends over the years, but, but yeah, so, you know, you're in St. Louis right now. That's where you grew up. That's where you started your company. That's where you've launched yourself. Um, you started off uh, as a Marine, right? I did. I did. Um, first, let me back up just a second and say thanks for having me and thanks for giving some attention to a field that, that doesn't get a whole lot of attention, at least in the touring industry. And now, as you said, it's kind of at the forefront of what's going on in society. So, so thanks for that. I appreciate it. Oh, no, no worries, man. To be on your podcast. So thank you. Um, yeah, I started off um, in security through the Marine Corps. I went in the Marine Corps right out of high school. I was 17. And um, it, it was a, a very interesting transition uh, from where I was, my parents wanted me to go to college. And I, you know, as you know, I'm interested in a lot of different things and I think it's very difficult or it was at the time to settle down. And I thought that would kind of be the way to go. And, and it worked out well. Um, and I don't know that you and I have ever even talked about kind of how it ended up in the security field before. No, no. I, well, I know you were in the Marines and you got out of the Marines and I think you moved to Los Angeles and somehow got introduced to, to Guy Ritchie. So you, you, you were, you were personal security before you were touring security. Yeah. So it's kind of a, it's, it's, I'll give you a very short version of a, of a much longer story. I was in the Marine Corps and I did the normal Marine Corps jobs, but there are jobs called B billets. They're like secondary duties. So like recruiting duty is one. And, and I found through lobbying this job, it was called the Marine Corps motion picture liaison in LA. And what it is, is basically there's a small office on Wilshire at the 405 that houses three Marines. And what they do is they go out to television shows and films and they are technical advisors. So the Department of Defense approves these and they, they basically start by looking at the script and they say, okay, is this a positive depiction of the Marine Corps? And if it is, then should we give them assets like planes and tanks and guns and, and, and military members and stuff like that to support this movie? Um, and if it's a positive depiction, then it, it has a value for recruiting. And so they would send us out to at the time, like Jag, you remember the television show Jag? Yeah. Jag was a very popular show. 
uh, they'd send us out and we'd look at the script and we'd say, no, we don't use that word. We use this word. And no, your ribbons are wrong on your uniform and you need to walk this way. You need to stand this way. And this is how you salute. And so you, you give them the technical aspect of being in the military, in my case, the Marine Corps. Um, and while I was there, uh, I know you know this too, I was fighting professionally. I was fighting in what was called No Holds Barred uh, or Valley Tudo, which now has become MMA or mixed martial arts. And I was training with a guy named Hicks and Gracie, who happens to have been essentially the best guy in the world, undefeated in, in 500 fights. And while I was doing that, and in the Marine Corps, uh, I had a, a guy who'd come over from uh, Europe, who was a film director, and was taking lessons. And at the time, I was a national champion. I was a, a US Open champion. I was a Pan American medalist. And I was still fighting professionally. And uh, this guy liked training with me. And at some point he basically said, hey, I want you to meet my wife. Uh, she's going out on the road, which I don't know what that means at the time. And I need a guy to train with me and a guy to add on to our security team. And so he said, come on over. I was in the Marine Corps. I literally left the office and I went to Beverly Hills and uh, I met his wife who, as you know, was Madonna. And uh, that's kind of where the, the touring side started. But I had been doing security before that down in Mexico. So as you're well familiar with, LA is kind of a, uh, a hotbed of money and wealth. And so when executives went down to Mexico for vacation or business, I would get that job. I would be the translator, I'd be the security guy, I'd be the navigator. And uh, so it was a natural transition to go from that side of security to the entertainment side based on guy wanting someone to train with on Madonna's tours. Yeah, you, you, you've been fluent in Spanish for several years. Yeah, I, I was I was lucky to do some work along the border and south of the border and, and develop Spanish very young. Okay, so so what year is this? Oh, uh, 99 ish. 99 ish. So 20, yeah, 20, 21, 22 years ago. Okay, so Guy Ritchie introduces you to Madonna. What's the next step from there? Where, where, where does it go? I mean, she has a tour booked and whatnot, and you're just... Well, at the time, she's working on some other stuff. Um, they had just gotten married, and little Rocco was born, and uh, the, the thing that they were working on next was a BMW commercial. So we were sort of working on the commercial and doing stuff. Well, Guy was directing that, Madonna was in it, and so when he was going places, he didn't want to miss training. So we would literally travel with mats, and I know... Uh, I brought mats on the road before with different artists that you've been with me on. And, oh, yeah, yeah. And so same same idea. We would bring in road cases. We'd bring these mats, these folding jujitsu mats, like accordion-style mats. And, uh, and so he wanted to train. So let's say we'd go in on this shoot on location somewhere, whatever country it was, and we would go in at 6 in the morning. And let's say we'd break for lunch around noon or 1. He'd want to train for an hour instead of having lunch. So we'd go train for an hour. And then we'd do whatever it was, and we'd wrap, say, at 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock at night, and he'd want to train for another hour. So that was kind of the starting point. And it doubled because of my military background and my executive protection background in Mexico. I doubled as a security guy. So it, it worked out pretty well for both of us. Nice. Okay, so eventually Madonna goes on tour. You're invited to go out and do the tour. She does. Uh, it was uh, the Drowned World Tour is what they called it. Oh, right, right. That was actually a good record of hers. I like that one. Um, so you're her personal, you're one of, you're one of many, you're the team. What, what's to yeah, with, with her, it's not a, it's not a one man team. You know, I, I know with us, a lot of rock tours, it's just a one man team, but 
um, you know, she's a moving city. And, and at the time, I don't know what she's doing now, but at the time, you know, you, you'd have one guy with the kids, you'd have one guy with the husband, you'd have two advanced people, you'd have two to three personal people. And then depending on the, the area of operation or the region that you were in, that would change and it, it would kind of ebb and flow, but she always had a large team. So it was a, 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 a cast of characters. And um, so I, I got to do a couple different roles on that front. I didn't ever get to do venue on that particular one, but uh, yeah. I, I was a personal guy for, for the family. Did you, did you have a, a, a mentor out there that kind of gave, gave you an idea of, you know, the lay of the land, how to be a security guy, what, what the, no. what the and, protocols you know, were? Did you just have no. to figure it out for yourself? I, I, that's a great, a great point. And it's a great segue too, because at the time that I had come out, I'd come from the military and then I'd come from executive protection. So military protection is very different. It's, it's very strong. It's very aggressive. It's very heavy and, and it's very serious. It's not kind of rock and roll security, which is not so serious. Um, and so I made a transition to the executive side, which is also toned down significantly from the military. But when I came out to touring, I didn't know anything about the touring realm. And the guys, for the most part, that I ended up out there with were Brits. And there was kind of a territorial thing from somebody coming in from the outside. And I wasn't told anything. I was, nothing was explained to me or shown to me. So literally, it was learning through watching and then trying to figure out what was real information, what was disinformation. And, and at the time, it probably didn't feel like the best thing in the world but it made me learn it and know it on my own and understand it on a visceral level. So I, I, I'm actually quite grateful to those guys who didn't show me the way or give me a system because I had to think for myself, which changed completely the way that I looked at it. Oh, wow. I wasn't, I wasn't a formula fed. So, so working for, for, for Guy Ritchie and Madonna, um, were you working for, working for both or you said you were on the family side? Well, I was working officially for Madonna, but I spent most of my time with Guy because Guy wanted to do, no pun intended, the Guy things, right? He'd run around and want to do the very macho kind of things. He'd want to fight and train and, and, and go see things that, you know, maybe he had never seen before that Madonna had been seeing for the previous 20 years as she traveled around the world. So right, right. I ended up spending a, a large portion of the time with him. Plus, he had a lot of film industry people coming and going from the shows and, 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 you know, very uh, big names that, that needed assistance getting in and out and moving around. And, uh, you know, he, he didn't necessarily require uh, a high level of security, but he wanted uh, the other components that came along oh, with course. it. And of course. That, that benefited me, obviously. Okay. So the, well, that, that tour or that relationship finally wound down. How, how did it end? Because the Madonna tour ended or, uh, or, or how, how did that Well, end? the tour ended and we went on to do a film and uh, we did a film. We we're in Sardinia for, I want to say a little over a month. And then we went to Malta for a little over a month. Uh, and then the film came out and basically Guy wanted me to transition to kind of like an assistant role in, to be quite frank, I just wasn't really interested in that. And I said, hey, really appreciate you guys and what you've given me and done for me, but I'm gonna go back and pursue this other stuff over here, which is basically training, security, fighting, and, and doing security in South America and Mexico. And uh, you know, that was a, a amicable separation. And, uh, and within a matter of months, I was introduced to another guy who was like, hey, I want you, I'm ready to go. Yeah, so, so how did that happen? So you, you, you go back home, 
you, you're not knowing if you want to stay in the concert touring industry or whatever, or, or in entertainment. You're, so did, did your next opportunity just fall in your lap or were you pursuing work? How, it, what it, happened? It, it was because someone that I had uh, worked with and lived with in the past in LA told another rock star, hey, this guy who's really good at jujitsu, uh, who's also a security guy, who's also a former Marine, who also does high risk security, um, he's, he's just left this entity and he's going to go back to the Latin security side. And uh, he said, well, no, I want to meet him. And I said, yeah, of course, I'll meet the guy. And we ended up going to train at this place in Hollywood in this loft, uh, kind of in Little Armenia area, little, little Korea, Little Armenia. Um, and I didn't know the guy. I didn't know who he was. I didn't really know much about his band. And uh, because of this mutual acquaintance, they were both very friendly and, and it was a very nice kind of meeting. We did some training together. And in a nutshell, um, because of a couple of good training sessions, he's like, yeah, hey, I want to bring you out on the road with me. Okay, and, uh, and this is this is Maynard James Keenan, right? It is. It okay, is. Okay, great. Yeah, I know because you you know, you you still work for him to this day. So this was this was an incredible opportunity for you. I mean, this is a you know, the, this encounter was was everything. It, it was. It worked out well because we were able to connect. You know, Maynard was formerly in the army, and even though we know that's a much lower level than the Marines, uh, <laughs> he still he still was in the military. Which don't, is don't awesome. worry, he won't be listening. <laughs> no, I'll make sure he hears this part. I promise. Um, and, and, uh, you know, we had the jujitsu connection and obviously we both love to travel. We were both single at the time. And also, you know, we both had an affinity for wine as you well know. And so we, we had a great, uh, a great rapport and, uh, you know, that was more than 20 years ago. So that that's. Okay. Right. Time. Cause you know, we, we met in 2003 this is where you and I met. Well, I was on Lollapalooza with Audio Slave. You were on Lollapalooza. This is the tour, not the not the festival that everybody knows it as now. It used to be a tour. Uh, this is the very last tour, the very last incarnation of the Lollapalooza tour, 2003. Uh, and you came in with a perfect circle, and that's that's where we met for the first time. Uh, so, how long had you been with Maynard at that point? Had you done Tool yet, or was it you was a perfect circle your first? No, no, I had done I had done Tool um, on the Lateralis tour before that APC tour. I think I think that was the thirteenth step tour that you're referring to. But, right. but uh, I'm I'm not the best with those names. Um, but yeah, I had done one Tool tour and then transitioned to APC on the next run. And as you know, Maynard goes tour to tour for the most part outside of yeah, COVID. He does. He does. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that, so that was really interesting because you and I met together. Uh, Perfect Circle came onto Lollapalooza, and and that's how I, you know, I had known Maynard from a Perfect Circle opening for Nine Inch Nails a couple tours before that, um, but just so happened that you know a production manager was needed for Perfect Circle. I got hired, and we got lucky, uh, and then we uh, started our, our our friendship. I almost said relationship, but that kind of sounds a little. Too, <laughs> that's more that's of a, a re- more buddy. Of a, it's it's a relationship. It's Come a relationship. I I, I I I agree. So, you know, you're you're still a personal guy. You know, you're by by now. I mean, when I met you, you seemed like you were really on it. So you would you would you would learned your trade very well. I mean, not only from the military, but the segue into into rock and roll. You kind of got the delay of the land for rock and roll. So. By the time we met in 2003, you were you were fully versed in in in, in, in security in our in our in our avenue. Um, so we did a perfect circle together. We had a great time in 2003, and then 2005 is when I got the Motley Crue gig um, on their uh, I don't know what it was called the 
the carnival of sins. Carnival yeah. of sins. Yes, I knew it was a I knew it was a festival or a carnival or a circus <laughs> or something. So, yeah, the carnival of sins. And I took you out and I said, "Hey, man, I know you've only done I've only you know you've been on the artist side. How about the venue side?" So you you segued over into the venue side with me. And uh, that's when you and I really became friends. You know, we travel together, the same bus, same office, working full time together and uh, on the venue end. Yeah, so, it was a great transition. And was that something you wanted to do, you think? or uh, You know, I think there's pros and cons like every other aspect of touring in life. And, and the, the pro on my side is the separation from the artist means days off can be days off and that, you know, you're not stuck or attached to somebody at the hip. And that's a, a great thing. And also there's a transition kind of in mindset. You're thinking more about layered security approach. You're thinking more about liability and you're almost more into a process. There's a routine, right? There's an order structure and there's an order of operations that doesn't exist on the personal side because essentially you're, uh, you're, at their beck and call. And if they have a crazy schedule, let's just say it's, it's a, a boy band, which, which we have had at least half a dozen big boy band tours. You're, you're going to be up 20, 22 hours a day, seven days a week. And you're going to be in clubs and running around and doing promo and radio. Uh, and then conversely, you know, I've had the other tours where we've got kind of, uh, you know, the older artists that are kind of legacy acts and those guys are in their hotel rooms all day. So you're kind of trapped in the hotel. Um, when you're doing venue, obviously you have a little bit more leeway because you have a set schedule. You kind of know the, the, the timeline, how things are going to roll out and you kind of have a more structured day where you can go through methodically and, and dot the I's and cross the T's and, and address things. So I think it's just, it's just a different animal from a security perspective between personal and venue that I don't even know if, if people that don't do it realize how drastically different those two jobs are. Yeah, yeah. And, and just, you know, that was 2005. So we're 15, 16 years later down the road. Just the evolution of venue security has, has changed, has adapted, you know, um, whether it be due to Bataclan, you know, where, where that Massive happened. Or, yes. um, or just, you know, just general, you know, hypersensitivity to, you know, to the artist's well-being or whatever, you know, we've, 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 we've seen it change so much. But, you know, staying, staying on Motley Crue, that, that was really interesting because, you know, for me, you know, I'd done a lot of rock stuff, you know, I've done, you know, semi-big stuff, but that one was the first time I'd ever traveled with that much security. We had you do in venue, and then each, each of the four band members had their own guy, so there was a, so there was a, a massive security presence on that show. Well, at least four of the guys were a massive security presence. I certainly wasn't one of the massive security presence there, but, but yeah, it was, it was a big team. I think uh, relative to kind of how different the guys were and operated, it ended up working out pretty well for the most part. Um, you know, guys' roles and responsibilities changed along the way with respect to what guy they were taking care of, how they were splitting guys and moving guys around. And, you know, one guy essentially became a medic for a band member. Another guy ended up, you know, being a nightclub guy. And, and then I ended up taking on three or four other roles that were kind of uh, in addition to uh, the venue security role. So that was, that was an interesting one. And as you know, as much work as it was, that was, that was a lot of fun. It was active. It kept you on the toes. The band members kept us engaged. Uh, you know, the crowds had a great time. That was, I, I thought that was a pretty good tour. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, but that was, that was the, uh, the reunion tour when Tommy came back into the band and, you know, they put a greatest hits record out and, you know, we sold every ticket in every city, you know, 
uh, at least the first two run-throughs because I think they tried to go through every market like a third time and then it started oh, I, to slow yeah, down by then. But I remember Kelowna and hitting those those C markets a couple of times, man. That was interesting. Yeah, yeah, we did go back. So let's let's talk about that. <laughs> the one incident in Spain, you know, which I, which I really, of, of course, was... Uh, a, a, a popular story at dinner tables, you know, with us because <laughs> we've sat at a couple, two or three dinner tables together, and then over the past, you know, 15, 20 years. Um, so let's 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 put it in perspective here. We're we're in Zaragoza, Spain. We're doing a show with Molly. Bands on stage. Something starts happening. People start getting on stage, and local security are, are being very lax. Am I, am I correct here? So uh, you, you are spot on. I mean, I think we both agree. Spain is a lovely place. It's a great place for vacationing. It's a great place for food. The people are beautiful. It's, it's amazing. Uh, security is not one of the things it's known for. In fact, the kind of siesta time is, is the mindset that security guys stay in almost full time with, with a few exceptions, but, but you, you've, you've got it so far. Okay. So an incident happens with a guy that's been on stage once or even twice. He's coming off. Correct. You, you intervene at some point, right? Tell, tell me what happens now. Yeah. So without naming kind of the guys that were there, you know, the, the security guys, one of the guys that was on stage, right? It's like, yo, dog, that guy's coming up on stage right again. And, and to his credit, he was kind of sticking to his guy. So he, he didn't want to leave the guy that he was protecting to deal with that issue. So I went back again, uh, you know, this is about the third time that I dealt with the same guy because security wasn't stopping him. And he was supposed to be ejected the first time he got up. And now he's up, say, the third time coming up onto the deck. Um, the first couple of times that I removed him, he wasn't combative. He was fine. And he kind of laughed it off. And I, I think this guy was under the influence of something more than alcohol. And, uh, you know, by the time that I got to him, uh, the, the wall of a human who was the security guy on stage right basically had stopped him. And I, I got a hold of him at the top of the steps. And as I took him out at the stage right access point, literally he started elbowing me and kneeing me. So I'm obviously uh, not very good, especially, you know, 16, 17 years ago, whenever this was, at dealing with someone assaulting me and being kind of kind and gentle about it. And so we ended up in a fight. And as we're fighting, uh, you know, I get control of him and I, I may or may not have thrown a couple knees in his face. And at that point in time, the local national police roll up. Well, you know, like I do, here's this guy from the U.S. in a foreign country. And it looks like he's assaulting someone when that's not the case. He's defending himself. So I took off and went back across the stage. And that's where you would have seen me on stage left because... <laughs> This would have been the last song in the set. So as I got across the deck, the local national police didn't want to come follow. And, uh, and that's when you remember the band coming off the stage, I'm sure. And uh, you remember, yeah, I, I yeah. remember that kind of interaction that was had at that point between me, you and the band members. Yeah, yeah well, well it, 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 you would come to me, you would, you would made it clear, hey, I just got into an altercation with a guy. He started, he started having at me and <laughs> you apparently laid him out pretty quickly. Uh, the local police, local security were in pursuit of you. And I was just, okay, let's, let's deal with this. So I, I got with the band. I said, Hey, Todd's in trouble. 
he needs to get the fuck out of here because the band did runners every day. They would get off the stage, maybe go to their dressing room for a second. They'd get in their Mercedes and zoom out of the building. So Tommy Lee is like, yeah, dude, this is awesome. So Tommy Lee gets involved, starts dressing Todd up in another outfit, puts this like big, huge shirt over the top of him and throws a baseball cap on top of his head and turns it sideways. And then we stuff him inside with, I think, Nikki Six's car, right? Something like that. And then, and then of course, you know, the band zooms out of the building. House lights come on, security's all over the backstage looking for you. They, they've, they've, they've stopped work. They, they wouldn't let the stagehands start on stage, nothing. They wanted you. They were looking all over for you. They, they, they searched every dressing room. They came up to me. They went to the promoter. They're all, everybody's looking for you. Like, where, where, where is this guy? We want him, you know? And, uh, and you were nowhere to be found. You know, and, and, and credit to to the to the promoter who was just don't, you know, don't say his name, but I I to this day I'm very grateful to that man, and I've talked to him about that. In fact, the last time that we were back there, I, I had a, a heartfelt conversation with him because, as you know, with passport details and all that stuff, he could have thrown me under the bus very quickly, and and he held ground and, and defended me and uh, didn't give me up. So I, I'm very grateful to him and a lot of other guys. Yeah, yeah. But, but, so, but, you know, on the other side of that, you realize that when we got to the airport, I'm not on the flight manifest. And so now, now the crew has to agree to allow me to come on. And uh, at the time, I had a couple days growth, plus maybe, you know, a two-week goatee. And I'm on the plane shaving, and they had agreed to kind of take me with them. But they're staying in the country, and that doesn't work. I have to go to another country. So they're stopping, dropping the band, and I'm going somewhere else. And if you remember, I didn't have my passport, which is a whole other sequence of problems we'll talk about. But um, the one thing that stands out in my mind about that issue is, is because of my military law enforcement background, those guys kind of saw me as, as kind of, you know, uh, prim and proper and clean cut and all that. What I, I really realized is that time I thought I was in shit with the band and they were high-fiving and partying that whole flight when we left. They were so excited that I'd come to the dark side. It was because they, they smuggled you out of, out of, out of the, not only out of the venue, but out of the country because we flew to Portugal they, or something. They did. And I'm, 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 you're correct. I don't remember how we got you back or how you eventually got back to the bus in your passport. Yeah, I, I, got, I got myself back, but the, the bottom line is those guys gave me a lot of support and love and, and respect. And, and obviously on my side, you know, I was... Uh, I won't say distraught, but obviously I, I had the crew in mind, you know, when you, when you were telling me on the phone what was happening, I'm like, fuck, that's, that's horrible. It's the opposite of what you want to happen to your team. But at the yeah. end of the day, it, it ended up being kind of a funny thing. And now with almost 20 years behind it, it's, yeah. It's well, the stagehands were held up, but, you know, after, after about 30 minutes of them not finding you and, and everybody just throwing their hands up in the air going, I don't know who the guy was, they let us load out. You know, the stagehands came in and we loaded the truck. You know, it wasn't a big deal at all. But that, that, that was, that was uh, gosh, I, I, I would have to say one of the highlight stories of, of that Molly Crew tour. And there were a lot of highlights. There were a lot of highlights. And we won't even look at the Mighty Mike midget stories and shower stalls and rooms. and. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, how about the one time? Well, you know, everybody knows about Vince Neil. Vince Neil was, uh, you know, he, he just, you know, was so insecure, you know, and, and if there, were, there was, remember there was a couple of occasions. The first one is there was a woman sitting in the front row. There was chairs and she was sitting and he was like, dude, she's like, came to you, dude, that, that, get her out of here. She's not standing. I'm like, what? The girl doesn't have to stand because she's in the front row. Yeah, but it's bullshit, dude. She 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 needs to 
get her out of there. <laughs> was it you that had to go over there and move her and she ended up being pregnant? I, 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 yeah. And, and, and first of all, your impersonation is good, but I kind of feel like it's a Jack Carson doing Vince Neil. I don't <laughs> in any, in any case. Yeah. We, we found out she was pregnant. We explained it to her and we got her some merch and we moved her back out of sight and took care of her. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was an odd situation to have, you know, from a crew guy's side, because the patron had done nothing wrong. And obviously those are the guys that are paying all of our wages. And so right, trying right. to take care of that person and uh, to boot a pregnant woman. So that was, that was a really odd. And, and I'm glad you reminded me of that. Cause that's a story I had forgotten. And it's definitely worth remembering. And, and what's uh, the I, other one? I don't really know how you, you, maybe you can give me the lead up to how this other story happened, we were, but I'm walking, we I'm walking, I'm walking backstage and, and all I see is, Vin, uh, not Vince, was it Vince or, or Nikki? They're like, they have some some punter back behind the drape and they're punching him out. One of the guys is holding one. Well, like one of the guys is holding him while the other hit him. I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? Why is Motley Crue acting? He's a fucking poor punter. Why is this guy getting, well, what, what was that all about? Did, did, uh, Oh, that guy, that guy had started it, but the band was adamant about finishing, which I, I thought was pretty funny. I mean, none of the security guys really had any involvement in that. The band was kind of doing their thing, and that was, was upstage center. It, it was, again, another very odd scenario, as was Vince clearing the barricade in, uh, we're in somewhere in Phoenix area, Glendale Arena. And uh, I don't know if you remember that going over and in the barricade because the guy was flipping him off. And I mean, there was, there was no shortage of those events happening on that entire tour. And uh, it's, it's a very memorable tour. You know, tours kind of come and go. You remember bits and pieces, but I, I would guess there's no less than a dozen epic stories with that band and those guys. Right, right. Uh, and that's just on our tenure with them. Yeah, but that, so that was the beginning of our relationship working side by side. Because we went on to, I don't want to say exclusively, but pretty pretty much exclusively when you could. We were together. You were in the production office with me on every tour that I did, you know, as venue security. Um, That's why we it's a relationship. From, yeah, we went to, from Motley. We went to Roger Waters. You, you uh, on Dark Side of the Moon tour, you quarterbacked all the Southern Hemisphere, South America, Mexico stuff. And uh, that's, when, that's when they were introduced to, oh, this is what a real security guy does. Because before a trip was like, we don't need security, this and that. And then, and then they meet you and go, oh, you know, it was a, an abs- it was a service they never understood or expected that can't live without now. It's, it's crazy. Um, and we went from uh, Dark Side of the Moon. We went right after we went to Janet Jackson together. We did that. That was wonderful. Great yes. experience. Yes. After that, we did. Uh, I, I always have to preface this one because, you know, the Azov people kind of made me do it. You know, <laughs> we did it. We did it. We did it. We did Creed together the, their, their full circle was like their big reunion thing oh creed's getting back together this is going to be massive and it was semi not massive <laughs> what's that big song with arms wide open we used to we used to joke with seats wide open no it was uh, it was my sacrifice and it was my stack of rice 
can, I can hear him singing right now in my sack of rice. Oh, funny. And then we did that. Uh, it was only a couple weeks long. Another thing for Azov's office, the, the Glee tour, the, the adaptation did. The touring did. Of, of the TV we, show with the kids. That's right. That's right. And two of those actors are now deceased. The lead male and the second male. Oh, sorry. And the, and the, one of the females as well. She, yeah. This past year. Yeah. She drowned. It's like that's, three out of eight of them are dead. It's crazy. But they were good kids, you know, that was, uh, you know, it was kind of a, you know, it's not something I wanted to do in the long run, but, you know, it, it was fine. Yeah, they, some of them were, I don't know about other ones. I certainly wouldn't endorse the child molester, Mark Saling, who, who ended up right. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, Corey, you know, was in good spirits and, and Naya was hit and miss, but I, I, you know, for the most part, they were, they were good to us. I keep in touch with a couple of them. They'll, they'll hit me up now and then. And, and um, you know, the, the ones that are real kept it real. And the ones yeah, that one of them endorses you on your website, right? Yeah. So, so that was uh, in regard to the last book that I just did uh, in Basically, what she did is is a, a little short thing and went out on social media saying that, that she supported it and she's worked nice, with me. Nice. I, I, I do want to talk about your books, but we, uh, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, but after that Glee run, that's when we embarked on a three-year run with Roger Waters doing The Wall. Man, was that something else, you know, from, Epic. from, you know, just every arena on the planet segueing into baseball stadiums and, and football stadiums around the world. I mean, that was just, that one just kept going and kept going and kept going. What that production was, was brilliant, man. And I think, you know, I, as a kid, I listened to Pink Floyd and uh, like, I think most people, uh, but really to feel it in that environment was very different. I mean, I, I, when I say it's epic, I'm not just using that term lightly. That was an epic show. And people that I know that are really serious artists would come to me and talk to me about that. Holy fuck. I can't believe what I just witnessed. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, I'm sure you did. I didn't get to spend a lot of time watching the show because my back is to the artists. I'm looking at the patrons and I'm moving around and stuff is happening. So I don't get to take it in a lot, but when I would get to take in bits and pieces of it, it was just spectacular. I never, I'm sure, you know, as with all tours, there are failures, uh, but they were covered so smoothly and seamlessly that it was very difficult to see. And, and it would take something like a Roger Waters who would go study his films afterward. You know, he'd take the video and literally look for those nuances, those anomalies from the baseline of normalcy and say, this is wrong. We need to fix that. And he was one of the first guys I saw uh, really with this many years in taking it very seriously uh, for himself as for everyone else on the tour. So that was, that was a great, a great uh, lesson in business. Yeah. And, and, you know, and we still work for Roger Waters to this day. We did the last tour of the us and them thing. Um, when he works again, we'll be there with him as well. You know, he's just one of those guys when, when he works, you know, we're there. Yeah. It, it's great to, uh, to work for him. And, and to be honest, I, I talked last week to his manager, Mark Finnick and, uh, you know, the level of, of respect and professionalism that they extend to us is second to none as far as yeah, I'm concerned. Agreed, agreed. Okay, let's, let's, let's talk about um, your company, uh, you know, Tour Protection Group um, and its, and its uh, other wing, Close Protection Group, but more so importantly, Tour Protection Group. Tell me how that started. Uh, well, that incorporated in 99 as an offshoot of another group called Close Protection Corps, um, which was doing the executive stuff. 
down in, in Latin America. And the idea of tour protection was to focus on tours uh, and as well films shooting on location. So let's say you're taking like an Anthony Bourdain in Libya and you need a security structure set up. We'd go in and we would set up, you know, uh, FBOs and, and jets and cars and local national security and guns and movements and hard cars and all that fun stuff. Get him in, do his thing and get him out. Um, so tours you know very well the film side i'm not sure what you know about but we never did it in country we'd always do stuff overseas so um the tour side is coupled with the film side for us so that was what tour security was set up for uh or excuse me tour protection okay so you have your company you have a you know you've got a roster of guys right so how many how many guys do you how many guys on your team right now uh, our guys right now are 24 but i don't know if you count uh, COVID time because that, that's right. Well, well you know, outside of COVID, you so and twenty four guys that are all in concert touring or or in executive are, high risk yeah. stuff. Or... No, those are the guys that are concert touring and, and the guys that we use for the other stuff. There's only a handful of crossover guys, right? You, there are guys that do very well in entertainment who are a bit softer, who are things are a little bit looser, more ebb and flow, less structure. Uh, those guys don't tend to do as well in the super high risk environments where they got to be hard and it's intense and there's uh, nasty things right. occurring. There's a couple of them, but only a couple. Um, right. Most of those things are kind of compartmentalized. And so we, we don't see a lot of crossover. So the other side of it um, that you're referring to, the higher risk stuff that we do in the Middle East or Africa or South America, those are a different group of guys who for the most part, you wouldn't meet on the touring side. And like I said, occasionally we'll have some crossover guys, but it's personality wise, it's very difficult for them to integrate or amalgamate into the touring mindset. It's just, it's yeah. so it's so different. It's in stark contrast to, to dealing with some of the stuff that they would deal with overseas. Yeah, I mean, I, I would like to get into that, but you know, you know, because this is a concert touring, more of a podcast, I'd, I'd wanna touch more on that. So you, you've got guys. Uh, how do you find guys? And once you do, do you put them through your personal training regime before you put them on the road? Tell me, tell me a little bit about that. So uh, guys really are about trial and error. So I can look at a resume and, and see all this cool stuff. Oh, you've done this and that, and that's all great. But really it's about how the personality fits and can they take direction? Can they adjust to the environment? And even you as a production manager, you're gonna have a personality type. You're gonna have a way of doing business. And there's gonna be certain guys that I know I can put with you. You're a little bit different than the average production manager in that you're a little more flexible, a little bit more amicable. You're not screaming, yelling and throwing stuff, which is why I'm with you. Um, but but you know, it has to fit personality-wise. Then once we, we get a guy that has a, a personality profile that fits, then we take them and we do a training. And normally training starts with the 60 hour training. And so it's all the basic stuff. It starts with protective security where they're doing shooting, fighting, driving, stress inoculation, uh, you know, working 24, 48 hour days uh, and having to do problem solving. And then once they get done with that, then we get into the more administrative side, which is kind of the venue side where you get into different structures of venues going from, you know, clubs to theaters, to arenas, to amphitheaters, to stadiums. Uh, the differences there from a, a risk perspective, from a threat perspective, from a vulnerability perspective, 
Um, and, and then all the components that come into writing up uh, advanced site surveys, doing tour security advances, doing staffing appointments, working with budgets, stuff like that. That's more on the admin side. Uh, it doesn't require you to be a super hard person or have any special skills. So we compartmentalize it that way. So first part of training is more of developing the hard skills. Second part, more of the soft skills or admin skills. And then once they pass through that, we go into an OJT or an on the job training. And you've seen a few guys that I've had out uh, from that as well. So if you remember Belgian Chris, he was in that program, same thing. You know, we met him. Uh, if you remember on Muse uh, at the time, they were bombing uh, Belgium and uh, you know, they, there were, significant threats. There were gunfights in the street when we were staying uh, there at the Amigo. Um, and, and he came from that realm. And then he transitioned, came to the US, took our training, and then we put him in OJT. So he'd come out on the road. We'd develop him on the road to see if he was a fit. And little by little, we'd give him more and more responsibilities. And then we would uh, establish a contract with him, and then he would become part of our team. Oh, that, that is how it should be done. You know, um, I'm, I'm not sure a lot of people see it that way. So how, how, what's the average on guys or percentage on, on guys you, you, you take and can use versus guys that you feel aren't a fit and maybe won't work out? Uh, we're probably in a group of 10, like we, we try to do small training groups. So our courses, if we're doing a 60 to 80 hour course, we normally start with 10 guys. And by the time it's done, we can usually use two to three of them. And, oh, okay. and uh, the remainder just aren't a fit for whatever reason. And you get to see them over stress. It, it changes. And I, you know, these are varying degrees of stress. Um, you know, it could just be a timeline stress. It could be peer pressure. It could be, you know, physical stress if they deal with combatives like defensive tactics and stuff like that. Uh, and then on the, the higher risk side, obviously you get up to and including things like, you know, being caught, captured, captivity, waterboarding type stuff like that. But tour security guys, they have to at least be able to deal with the time side. As you know, uh, there's nobody that's uh, working an eight-hour day. It just it doesn't work that way. So uh, we see a lot of that. And guys that aren't used to traveling, it's hard for them. If they're used to – I had a bodybuilder guy. He, uh, you know, he needed his protein. He'd eat every so often, and, and it just – it doesn't work out. And you know that right away. It's not going to work out. You're not going to get to the gym two hours a day. You're not going to eat a protein meal every three hours. It's, it's, you're, you're not a fit. And so we don't even put guys like that through the training. So I would say somewhere usable, I would say one in five. Yeah. I mean, well, you, you, you've got to be particular on the guys that, you know, I mean, because uh, I, I know it's, it's, it's no secret to me. I mean, you, you've had to go through a lot of situations where there was, you know, lawsuits, you know, yeah. and, and, and that's, that's the kind of thing that you need to be cognizant of with your guys, you know, because security these days, when I, when I sell security to, to managers or tour managers who, are, who aren't believers, you know, I, I always use the analogy of a good security guy could save you millions of dollars in, in, in liability. You know, that's he, a fact. He, he could prevent the shit from going down, you know, you know, the, 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 couple hundred thousand dollars you might spend on a security guy through a period is nothing compared to the several million in lawyers fees that you're going to be facing because you know this is a litigious society you know people are going to want something for nothing and and security guys venues artists they all get named so i know you've got i know you're up close and personal you've seen that and you've gone through that so uh, i think it's important i'm, I'm an advocate of, of carrying security 
and uh, and uh, you know I, I fight for it. I fight for it. Yeah, I think I, you're right on all fronts there. I mean, first of all, the the, the danger for us is is for the most part loss of human life and preservation of life for us at least is a priority. That's number one. Second to that is is the civil side of things where uh, even if you do everything perfect. Um, you're still going to be sued. And then you're going to spend your time and money and energy defending that lawsuit. And as you know, they hit everybody involved in that. And then they divvy up a percentage, hopefully in some type of settlement and they go after the big insurance policy. But uh, I don't believe in security by the pound. You know that by looking at the guys that are on oh, my of course. team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I don't believe in one size fits all. Uh, you know, security is for the most part, 90% choreography, how you're planning, how you're organizing, how you're coordinating. If I'm yeah. writing a proper advance, if I'm on the phone with them, if I'm doing a walkthrough at eight o'clock in the morning, if, if we're doing a follow-up meeting, if we're doing a security meeting, if we're doing a barricade meeting, if we're doing after action reports and sit downs and briefings, and if we're sharing notes, and if we're looking at past performance in those venues or with those security teams, uh, that's 90% of it, planning for what could occur and trying to cut out the liabilities. And, uh, you know, anything other than that, just physically being presence is, is not security. Uh, yeah. presence, presence alone is, is no good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, we have the venue security guys sit in a chair by the door. That's not for you to do. No, no. Okay, so, you know, when I was a kid, you know, my, my first, in, in, you know, introduction to security, you know, the, the guy came in and he made passes, maybe. <laughs> and that was it. You know, he would maybe go out and kick the tires on the barricade or whatever and wander around. But that was about as far as it got. You, you, you've taken it to another level. And, I, and I, you know, you're not the only one. A lot, a lot of people have and, and a lot of people have copied you. Um, walk me through some of the some of the, you know, the duties and whatnot that you go through a day. Cause I know you guys, are, you know, you do risk assessments, you know, you know where the local hospitals are. You, you know, if we're in a foreign country, you know, where the, you know, you, you know, where uh, the embassy, the embassy, where, the embassy, yeah. you, you know, where the embassies are. I mean, so, 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 yeah. so walk, walk me through a day of responsibility for yourself yeah. or one of your guys. Oh, uh, uh, I'll try to do it in a, in a, in a really simple format so that it's, it's easy to understand, but in a nutshell, what the objective is, is to understand the demographic first and foremost. And once you understand the demographic and the activities of that demographic, if I know I'm gonna have, you know, an, <clears throat> a predominantly male crowd, 70, 80% male, 30% female, they're, they're moshers, crowd surfers, they're, you know, they're fans of crystal meth. And, you know, these are the behaviors we've seen over time that helps me determine what I'm going to set up for security. So we look at the history of that group. We figure out what the demographic of the group is and we start to build stuff. So the way that we build it is based on, on what's called layered security approach or concentric rings of security, meaning you start with the outside and you work your way in. And on the outside, like on the outer layer of security, you want to deter people that don't belong there, shouldn't be there from coming. So you have a police presence outside, you have good lighting outside, you have queuing outside, you have a choke points, so it's filtered coming in. Uh, you have a search, right? So those are all things that would deter somebody that didn't have a ticket from trying to, to break in or come in or bring something in they shouldn't have in. Um, and then you have a detection method, right? So then there's some layer that sees it. it can be cameras, it can be people, it can be a roving patrol of dogs, it can be whatever it is. So that's your detection. Then you have these additional choke points or layers that are delay mechanisms. So it slows down the person from getting from the outside all the way to the inner sanctum sanctorium. 
And so that delay allows you time to respond, whatever that quick reaction force is, the team that's going to respond to it. And then you have mitigation protocols in place with managers, lawyers, agents, security, uh, things like that. So you set that up and you document everything through the advanced process. And then what you were just referring to is more along the lines of our critical incident protocol. So critical incident protocol is more like Botacon, which you also referenced. And, and that's an important thing because even in my experience with the Botacon, I had uh, some British artists who said, you know, they hate guns, they don't believe in guns. And when that happened, they asked me to have, you know, static posts with guys armed in the barricade. And I'm trying to explain to them that you can't really shoot into a crowd of people. The, the bullet is going to penetrate, you know, uh, stuff like that. So the idea of a critical incident protocol is to give the crew and the band primarily uh, options, right? So you initially you say, what are we going to do if this happens? Well, first is you're trying to evacuate the area. So we try to evacuate. If we can't evacuate, we try to barricade or lock into a spot that's hard that, that bullets can't penetrate or blast would be limited by. Uh, and then if you can't, then you got to fight that person, deal with that active aggressor in whatever way you can using uh, weapons of opportunity. So the critical incident protocol would show something like where you're going, how you're getting there, what's available to you in that environment. And those are things you've seen me post up on walls and, and stuff like that. So we use letters and numbers and colors and symbols and glow sticks and lights and things like that to direct people in a certain way, a safe passage, and then in the general direction they need to go to. And then the mapping that you've seen that you referenced would be safe havens where they can go to to be safe places like the U.S. Embassy that they can go to for help, uh, places like band or crew hotels that they're going to have support. And it's going to be open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And then from the security side, it also has something called elevation, which means I can go up to the top and see things coming down. And it's harder for people to fight upwards than downwards. So you want to be up at the top. Um, and then you start to look into hospitals. And as you know, you've heard me on the phone before talking to hospitals, we want, if we have the option, a trauma level one hospital, which means they have a trauma surgeon on site 24 seven, because I'm not worried about you getting a cut or a scratch or a bruise. You've seen me deal with that in the production office many times with many yeah, people. Yeah. I'm worried about things like arterial lacerations where you know, like the femoral artery gets cut and you have two minutes to live before you bleed out. So you see those, those kits that we have, they're not first aid kits, they're trauma kits. So they have tourniquets in it. They have things like quick clot, Israeli bandages, all these things for major incidents to essentially sustain life until we can get them to somebody like a trauma surgeon to take care of them. So yeah, that's you know, been such, you're, you're, you know, you being available for, for trauma, you know, I mean, whenever, uh, you know, if a, uh, if a lighting guy bumps his head on a truss and cuts his head open, if somebody falls and you know sprains their ankle, I mean you're my first call every time, and you know how to treat these people like like any EMT would, you know, and that's incredibly valuable to have on a team. Yeah, we're we're fortunate to have some good luck there because we've had the assets, we've had stuff, we've had good communication with the crew guys and and guys supporting each other. You know, when they try to tough it out, like nope, don't tough it out. Go over there, get treated, get taken yeah. care of. We'll handle your workload. And because of communications like that on our team, you know, we, we've not had any really serious issues, even with things that could have gone south. So, yeah. so I, I agree with you 100% on that front. Yeah. Uh, another, another thing that, you know, you, another routine that you and I have, especially on the shows that are selling really well, are what's happening at the doors? You know, are all the people going to be in in time? You know, if the, if the show's meant to start at eight o'clock 
and you know there's a bunch of seats empty you know what's going on at the front door i mean you you're really you've always been really good at monitoring the ingress and you know or you know giving giving the venue tips on how to get people in faster or safer or whatever and you and i are always on the radio hey todd what's the front door look like and you you'd let me know you know do you think we can start on time you know uh should we hold 15 minutes you know and and that kind of communication you don't always, you don't get from the promoter as much as you ask for it and you want it. You're just, you're just not going to get it. You know, the promoter may walk up to the front door, take a quick look and then walk backstage again, but you, you stay out there until we know that we're in a good place as far as, uh, you know, people in the building and starting the show, because, you know, you know, artists are, they, they don't want to start the show if people aren't in there, you know, I mean, if there's a curfew and they got to start or they're not going to finish on time, I totally get it. But, uh, you know, that, that is, that's an invaluable thing that you, you've always offered for me and, and, you know, love it. I think it's, it's critical to what our main objective is, right? What our mission is to have a successful show, to make the artists happy, the patrons happy. And, and part of that is, is getting people in, into their seats to, to see the show, but also for the venue to, to buy food and bev and for us to sell merch and all the other components. And I think you know, if you're asking the promoter rep to go do it, there's plenty of really hardworking, badass promoter reps that you and I both know. Um, you know, Shunk was one of the guys that we had out with us that's just, you know, invaluable who would take the time to walk 10 minutes upstairs to go find out what was going on, but not just stand there and ask somebody what was going on, but to look at and see how the flow was. How, what's the flow rate? How are they moving in? Where are they at? Do they have enough staff? Is there a bottleneck? Is the issue scanning or is the issue searching? Are the people outside partying? And, you know, and, and looking at those, those variables in the equation to make a determination or an adjustment. And, uh, and I, I agree with you. It's a huge part for some reason that gets overlooked by tour security. I'm not exactly sure why. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, another another thing that that I find funny and you know, a lot of people always look at is, you know, you put tape on the ground with arrows. You know, you yeah. always there. You put arrows on the ground so if a band member needs to get out of the building, they walk out and follow your arrows all the way to a door. What's the quickest exit outside? What is the safe haven? And uh, G T F O G T F O. So so you have little tapes on the ground with G T F O on them. And I always like to watch around, you know, building people come up and going, GTFO, what is, what is, what is that? <laughs> you come up with things, but you know, as we know, it's get the fuck out. That's what GTFO <laughs> is, you know? So the artist, you know, knows, Hey, how do we get out of here? We go this way, you know, and that's, that's always, that's, yeah. always, that's always a fun one. Yeah. You know, tapes always gone on the ground to get artists say to and from the stage, but the color coding of a critical incident, like if we use pink or red, whatever it is, and we have that GTFO and it's telling them where to go to get out of a trapped area is very different than getting to the stage and getting to the dressing rooms. And, uh, you know, the, the reason that I put GTFO instead of evac or exit or anything like that is because one, it's an inside joke. And two, when something's funny, people pay attention to it and, and it, it'll stand out. Right. That's why we're talking about it now. And, and we're laughing about it. Tons of guys are laughing and pointing at that, but I'll go back to a venue and six weeks later, eight weeks later, that tape, and that GTFO will still be on the ground. The triangles will still be on the door. The glow sticks will still be there, even though they're not working. And the, the, the really funny thing to me is I've had two other people in touring come to me and say, hey, there's this great system where you have these trauma kits and you have this, and you have this critical incident planning, you have these things. And they show me pictures and they're showing pictures that I took of my house of an example. So when I'm teaching these guys classes, I'm showing them, all of a sudden they're incorporating that system and showing their tour manager, production manager, agent, whoever it is, 
hey, look, this is what we're going to do. And so, oh, well, you should ask that guy where he got that because that's a picture of the inside of my house. Yeah, yeah. So it's being adopted. And I think that's a good thing. I, I, I'm certainly not angry about it as long as they give credit. And, and, you know, the guys are saying, look, I came up with this program. You actually didn't. But that's, that's a whole nother story. But at the end of the day, if it benefits everyone, I think that's great. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of your methods are being copied. They just are. And that's just the way it is, you know, when, when uh, you know, when you're good and you have great ideas, people are going to want to steal them. That's just what it is. It's not, it's not even that. It's that I'm bringing in ideas from other areas. It's not that. It's just, it's new to touring. It's not new to the world and it's not mine. I don't own that particular thing, but it's interesting when they take that and act like they just came up with this idea out of the blue. I, I, again, I'm not, I'm not mad. I just would expect people to have enough fortitude to be able to say, hey, this is, yeah. this is where I got it from. And, and at the end of the day, like I said, if yeah. it helps everybody and keeps people safe, that's great. Another thing I, I admire uh, about you is, because you, you come in and you're well prepared and you communicate really well with venues. You know, you have your meetings with the head of security and the promoter and the building and the fire marshal and whoever you have these meetings and you, you're, you're such a good communicator and, and your, and your, you know, your advance is so good and your meetings are so good. When you and I open doors, you know, let's say it's a six o'clock door, you and I walk out onto the floor or I walk out onto the floor like quarter of you're already out there. And you're walking around just to make sure your deployment's right. Or is everybody in place? Can we open doors? And I always look at the eyes of all the security guys and the supervisors, and they're all following you around. They're all kind of, they all got their eyes on you. You know, they're, there's this respect that they have for you. And, and I think that is just so important for the building to buy into the tour and to listen to the tour because, you know, you know, it's like local security. They think they know better. And maybe sometimes they do. It's their venue. It's their house. They know how to manage their house better than, than maybe I do. But just how you are able to get them on your side and the level of respect they give you back is it's just pretty incredible. It's pretty incredible. Cause you know, when you walk in the ven in the venue in the morning and the head of security walks in to meet you for the first time, it's like, Todd, Todd, it's always this is really wonderful and you know, meet. You know, I mean to me that that also summarizes kind of how you operate as a production manager as well. Because it, when you're willing to listen to people and talk to people and then maybe give examples as to why you'd like to do it and what the ramifications of, of uh, that particular action are against whatever it is they're trying to do. Uh, you, you end up with a conversation and a discussion and trying to kind of meet somewhere in the middle that it's benefits everybody, the whole team. And I, at least working for you, I feel that same way. And the guys I know that work for you, you feel that way. Uh, the, the line of communication is always open. You're busy. People are in your ear, but yet you stop and take time to listen to them. And I don't think it's any different with venues. Yeah. You know, you're, Hey, these are the points that we need to discuss. These are the variables in the equation that are significant and let's address it. So that we get the outcome that, that we want that works for all of us. Yeah. And usually, usually I think if you approach it that way, uh, from my experience, it does work out for everybody. It's, it's give and take. Yeah, it's, 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 it's good. You know, uh, you know, you, you, you get back what you give sometimes, you know? So if you give people respect and you give them the information you need, you're going to get the respect, the information back from them. You know, it's just the way it is, you know? So 
Maybe that's why we've done 11 world tours together. <laughs> hey, so let's, 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 let's you know, you're the author of two books, which is very impressive on security. Uh, your first one came out, uh, oh, I don't know, is it uh, five, six, seven years ago? Um, I, I, I just released the third book. The first one Pardon was me. on tour security. And the reason that I did the book, and it's not comprehensive, it's not an end-all be-all, but there was no book on tour security. And as I mentioned to you earlier, when you were asking about my first tour, um, no one showed me the ropes. No one told me what things were, right? I didn't understand necessarily how a barrier worked or how a uh, flow and a line work or how uh, flow rates or counts affect things or even what a cable ramp was or a bike rack or how these things are utilized. And so the first book was written on that just to give guys, like let's say they work for CSC or staff or any local contract security company, an idea of what it is they need to know to transition from that to tour security or from the executive to tour security or the military to tour security. Um, and so it's a very short book that basically said, hey, here are the key points. It's, it, it defines the things. It tells you what a normal daily timeline is like, what you need to travel with, you know, how the day works, how passes work, just the, the basics, the simple, simple basics. And that book was only developed for one single reason, because it didn't exist. Yeah. And so that gave guys a platform to work from. And I still talk to guys today. Um, and they say, you know what, I use that as a general template. When I look at my timeline, I want to figure out what I'm going to do, or I look at what passes I need to add to my credential board when I'm talking to say cube passes or whatever you use, this is what I go by. And so I, I appreciate that. Some people will poo-poo it. That's fine. They don't like it. They don't have to like it, but it's there now. And it wasn't there before. Um, consequently, I was sent an email a couple months ago and, uh, I think the book's selling for like 120 or $150, a little tiny, book selling for a crazy amount because I guess some small bookshops grabbed it when it was still in print. And we sold like 3000 copies, um, which isn't very many, but the first book on the subject, you know, it's, it's not a major subject. Uh, we did 3000. So the second book, um, well, the, first book was, called, the first book is called all access, the secrets of tour security. Thank you. Thank you. I, for, I, I almost forgot that. Um, but yeah, if you, if you were to look that up, it, it, it's kind of humorous to see how much people are selling that book for. But, uh, well, we'll put links on the, in, the, in the notes of the show notes for the show. We'll put links to your books. And what was the second book? Because I know you have the, your new book is called Protection, one, for, for, Protection for and from Humanity. That's, that's, that's probably, well, I'll let, you, I'll let you explain. Go ahead. Tell me about your books. This book is not available to the public. And that is a book on use of force and force continuum. And, and that's, specific to military and law enforcement, not related to tour security at all. Um, so that you won't find laying around unless you know the right people. Um, and then the third book, which was released in October, um, you can get it on prohumanity.pro uh, or tourprotection.com, or you can get on Amazon or you can get on Apple. You can get all, all of the sites. Um, that book is more specific to the general population, right? So it uses tactics, techniques, and procedures that, the military uses, law enforcement uses to protect people. And so we're giving you systems and processes that if you followed or applied in your daily life, you can use for your family or your business, right? It's not specific to tour security. In fact, it has nothing to do with tour security. Um, but given the current times, it just happened to be that the pandemic happened. I had the book sitting on the back burner. All of a sudden I had extra time to finish it. Uh, I finished it and we put it out. And I think 
We're at 5,200 copies sold on paperback. Um, and I think we're at a couple thousand between Amazon and Apple books. Nice. So it, it's, it's doing, it's doing pretty good. Shockingly. I guess it has yeah. to do more with kind of the, the time frame that it was released in. Oh, good. Good for you, man. You know, I mean, I, I, I think a lot of people will be interested in that, you know, simple, simple, simple things like situational awareness, how, how you realize what's in your environment and, Something simple we spend a lot of time talking about is establishing what a baseline is, right? In your environment, whether it's your house or your neighborhood or, or your venue, you're establishing what is normal so that you can identify an anomaly, right? Which is something that's not normal. And we have anomalies above the baseline, which would mean here's the normalcy plus something added to it is an anomaly above or something all of a sudden that was always there and it's gone now. That's an anomaly below the baseline. And then once we identify an anomaly, we talk about is the anomaly benign or is it critical? And most anomalies happen to be benign, right? Yeah. It's critical, you have three options. You either cancel what you're doing, you change what you're doing by adjusting your movement, your Evernote approach, how you're, how you're dealing with it, uh, or you continue as planned. So change, cancel, or continue as planned. So, mm-hmm. um, and we get into that. Very, very simple, common sense based, but then applied to different scenarios, like again, family and business, as opposed right. to well, you know, it's still it's still interesting stuff, you know, absolutely. So, do you do you do you still do the executive high risk stuff yourself, or or is that more for your team? Do you do you have you retired no, from from going to third world countries with oil execs? I I have not retired from that. In fact, I love doing that. That's very real. Uh, we both work in a realm that is uh, smoke and mirrors and a lot of make-believe and the consequences always are not as high as they seem like they would be. Uh, so a little bit of a reality check from my job is really important, right? So if I want to be able to operate at a high level, let's say in touring, and I need to be able to deal with immense stress, if I go to an environment where things are very bad, whether it's related to poverty economics uh, in that realm, access to assets, whatever it may be, or or governmental oppression, whatever it is, it could be a war zone. Uh, If I go there and I can operate at a high level, coming into a controlled environment where I have all these assets, where I have all these control mechanisms, I have all these human assets, I become much better when things fall apart. And and that's really a critical thing. And I, I, you know, I think anytime that you've seen bad stuff happen around me, you've never seen me panic and lose my mind and go crazy. Uh, it, it's, it's about being able to stay in the moment and present and deal with that issue. And that comes from extreme situations and experience in, in those realms. So last year I spent some time in Northern Iraq doing NGO work, not as an NGO, but security for NGO. Uh, we spent a lot of time in Colombia, Mexico, Brazil, uh, Northern Africa. So I still do that. It's not as much obviously as touring or, or films on location, but uh, it's important. I think it's, it's, it's a little bit different for a security guy from my perspective than other people, just like partying. You can have guys that are partying right. and doing certain activities the security guy can't be i can't be drunk or high or whatever when i'm when i'm working so it's it's just a little bit different from my perspective for the security guy and that's why i try to stay engaged in those other realms to some degree um, whether it's an executive or a non-governmental organization or or uh, you know private sector work uh, i try to do those at least uh, throughout the year occasionally right i i i you, you haven't talked much about this next thing, and I, and I don't expect you to, but you have shown me pictures where you are 
you know, with some associates and you're all decked out in body armor. You got helmets on, you got automatic weapons in your hands. You're fully, you know, fully protected. I mean, do, is, is what, what, what do you, how do you refer to that end of the industry that, that you're sometimes in? Uh, that, most that, people will call it HRSO or high risk security operations. Um, and, that's and not again, security. That is an operation, though, right? That is not. You're well, not standing around yeah. waiting for some guy to get out of a meeting. You're. That's well, an you, operation. You you are actually. So what what that is is it's the same thing. Think about a tour, but just more fortified and a much uh, higher degree of risk. And the threat uh, is is on another level. So with that kind of stuff, when we do it in foreign countries. Um, that's us building some type of ally, some, some type of infrastructure, a, a partner force, and us going in and helping them set something up, training them, and then when they carry out whatever it is they're doing, protecting someone, we're with them uh, in a educational capacity, in a support capacity, whatever it may be. But we, we still do that with, with you know, uh, three or four major groups, and um, it, is, it is protection. It is the same oh. concept. Um, you know, it's not an offense of what we would call direct action operation. Direct action is when we're going after somebody we're chasing. So this is the big disconnect, I think, at least for me, when I train police and military coming into security. When we're in our realm, we're fleeing problems. We're running away from the problem. We're evacuating. When you're military, you go to the threat. And that's not how we operate unless we don't have an option. So it's, it's a very different kind of idea. Like we do driving and the driving is evasive and protective driving. Whereas police are pursuing something in the military, it's pursuing something. So it's, it's a little shift kind of in, in your role there. So it's the same thing when I do high risk security operations, we're still for the most part working in a protective capacity. It's, it's not a direct action mission if, if that's what you're thinking of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, totally. I mean, I, I, it's, it's, it's all very, you know, foreign to me. I mean, uh, obviously, you know, but I find it very fascinating, you know, and uh, to, to know that I have a guy in my team that has these capabilities and who has this knowledge and can save my ass when, when the shit hits the fan is, uh, you know, I've heard, I've heard a lot of roadies, you know, when we were like in, you know, foreign South America or if we're in Mexico or if, you know, we're in a high risk area, Colombia, whatever. And, you know, you're very good at addressing the crew. You know, you'll send out these emails to the crew saying, Hey, this is where we are. This is what you need to look out for. You know, you need to be wise in this respect. Don't go out alone or what have you. You'll write this long brief to everybody in the crew. Just Hey, this is where we're at. You need to have your eyes wide open. These are the things you need to look out for. And crew members really appreciate that. You know, I've, I've, uh, you know, I've been on the, you know, on, on like on the bus or in a car driving with crew guys and they'll say, man, I'm so glad Todd Fox is here. Or, or, you know, I, I, you know, if Todd wasn't here, I wouldn't have come. Or, you know, there's, there's, there's a high level of respect and uh, from the crew and they know what you do. And, uh, you know, you make people feel safe, you know, band members, crew members all along. Yeah, I, I, that means a lot to me. So thank you for saying that. And I, I appreciate the crew respecting that, that that information is shared from the heart, meaning I'm, I'm providing it for them as a person, not because it's my job to provide the crew information. So th thank you for saying that. And, uh, and, it, and it does mean a lot to me. And I, I hope it does help some of them. Uh, I know occasionally they find themselves in certain situations after partaking in certain activities. And, and hopefully that, that can help 
mitigate the problems that come from it. Yeah, you will. I've, I've witnessed you get people out of out of trouble many times. You know, <laughs> just just from just from a few simple words. Now, now the, the the last thing I want to get into is is the excessiveness <laughs> that we've shared planet Earth together. You know, whether you know with with man the the amount of money you and I have spent on food and wine. It's probably shocking. I don't even want to know, to be honest with you. But uh, you, you and I have shared exceptional moments together, culinary, all sorts, you know. And uh, I, 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 those are some of the most precious memories and times of my life. I've been with you at a dinner table in a restaurant, just having a wonderful experience. I, one, uh, I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Even when I think about it and think about the houses I could have paid off, the cars I could have paid off, <laughs> I, I, still, I still wouldn't change it. I, I remember a lot of them. Uh, I, I do seem to remember a dinner in Puerto Rico that kind of kicked oh, yeah. things off, at least on that front for us. And, uh, you know, we both had our own things going on, but I, I turned you to the dark side of Italians from, from being a Francophile and... Uh, yeah. And it seems like you kind of have stuck that. Oh, very grateful for that. Just so everybody listening, Todd Fox has, uh, uh, not only does he know wine in general, but he is, he is a, I would, I'll say expert when it comes to Italian wine. You know Italian wine, whether it be, whether it would be, you know, Northern Italian, Central Italian, Southern Italian, Sicilian, you, you know, you know your wines, you know, from, from, from Tuscany to, you know, Veneto to everywhere, you, you really have a handle on it. So is that, that's just something you just grasped onto. You're like, Oh, Italian wine, that's my bag. It is, man. you know, I, I, I had uh, the pleasure of sharing the story last week to a gentleman. Um, I, I was doing a job and, and we kind of touched on it a little bit, but I was in Malta and we took the entire top floor of this hotel, literally bought out the top floor. And then this artist didn't want to stay in the top floor anymore, wanted to go to a villa. So the artist went to the villa and I'm cleaning out all the stuff that's on the top floor and all the rooms to make sure they're clear, just like you would going around the venue at the end of loadout, making sure everything's out. And, and I sent her a note. I said, hey, there's some bottles of wine here. I don't give a fuck. I don't want them. Okay, no problem. Are you sure? Yeah. So the, the, first, the first bottle of wine that I had high end was a 1982 Petrus Pomerol. And I thought, and this is, this is very honest assessment. I thought, oh my God, this is horrible. This is just disgusting. <laughs> this is a 1982, which is one of the, you know, flagship years of, of, of French wine. In the, it's a in the stellar vintage and that is a stellar house. And you and I both know that. But at the end of the day, you know, because of the Britannomyces on that particular wine, the bread just smashed me in the face. I was like, oh my God, this is horrible. And, and consequently, I ended up, you know, a couple months later in Sardinia and I'm drinking Cannonau and, and they had, you know, uh, some Tuscan wine. They had some Brunellos and I had some Barolos and Barbarescos. And I'm going, oh, my God, these wines are like $50 bottles. And I just had this $5,000 bottle. Oh, my God, you can't compare them. And so that was kind of where that, that light switch went off, that these resonated with me. And that I think part of that is the experience, as you know, the room that you're in who you're with, the proteins, like what you're eating and, and, and mixing the wines with. Because now if I'm eating this pasta and drinking this wine, it, it might hit perfect. Or if I'm having quail or pheasant or something like that with the Brunello, man, it just goes off. So, um, you know, that you can't explain that to people. You have to have that experience. Yeah, because yeah, I agreed. I go yawn at that. But then when they have it, 
they're turned and, and you will see that light switch moment go off or it just doesn't happen. It's never going to happen for them. Yeah. But, but we know that for us, it, those are some pretty serious moments. And, and, yeah. like, and then to have access to people like Maynard who shares great wines and people like Mark Fennick who share great wines, uh, you know, that's epic. Man. We would yeah, never yeah. have access to some of those things if it weren't for guys like that. Well, how many tours at the beginning with the tour all come up to you and say, hey, man, we can't be doing this anymore. <laughs> we, we, we can't be spending this kind of money. We, 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 we can't be going to these restaurants anymore, you know. And then, you know, two days later, we're. <laughs> I would say I would say at least a dozen times a tour for the last 10 years. No, 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 this is it. We're not. This is it. Just this is the last dinner. We're not doing this anymore. Yeah, we can't we can't afford to do this anymore. But my, 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 you know, it's, it's all the memories, of course, that, that dinner in Puerto Rico where we had that bottle of Ornelia together and that really opened my eyes. But I have to say the meal that's probably going to go down is this the most memorable would be La Bernadette. Yes. In, in 2017, I think that probably was, you know, La Bernadette. Aldo San is another one of those people that you know obviously first of all he's born with that name Sam and being a sommelier with the name Sam is amazing uh but that guy is so generous yeah so often and, and he's not pretentious at all at this is that a three-star michelin i mean Bernard Dennis is, is yeah. epic eric but, repair who was a good friend of roger waters and that's you know that's it was his restaurant yeah and 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 aldo man I, did you see aldo aldo's last book the book that he just wrote it's beautiful really thick hardback book that uh has beautiful colors and notes and it's it's super simple which which is with a guy's breadth of knowledge like that to simplify it in that way is amazing mm, he's a good man he's a good man book. he is if you haven't seen that book you should check it out well just so you know when we get back to work again i can't do that anymore <laughs> <laughs> oh never again Never. Well, who knows, you know, I'll tell you, uh, being off work for coming up on a year now, I mean, it's, 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 uh, I don't have to tell you, you know, or anybody who's listening to what, it, what it's been like, but uh, going out to dinner, you know, that's just one of the things that all of us touring people miss so much about, uh, about touring those days off those meals, you know, those, those restaurants that, that you you've been to in the past, you want to go back to again, those those are the memories, you know, they, 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 they keep it going. If, if we sat down for a month, we would have epic tales in probably a hundred countries. I mean, we, we did some damage across the globe when it comes to food and wine. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, let's do it in the future. Uh, let's podcast from a restaurant. Let's have yourself, me, John Lemon, all of our, all, you know, the dinner, the, the wine group, the dinner party. Let's, let's do a podcast from the dinner table. And, and, and we can uh, get Robert and, Perone in on it as well. I'm in. Yeah. Well, wait I just had John wait, Huddleston wait, wait. on, but. You know. You're going to do that and you're going to podcast from some epic place on the tour. And where am I going to be? Back in my home doing, you know, managing this <laughs> thing, producing it. Who, who else is going to introduce us? <laughs> uh, you know what? That's a lame idea. I'm, I don't agree with it. <laughs> all right that's the of sucks, okay but it's all right matt well matt will have to come out we'll have to do that 100 percent, matt you need to come yeah, i was i was fortunate enough I, I i mean not to butt in finally towards the end here but uh no, yeah no todd problem. i was with you with uh janet um i don't recall if you were on that short little stint of roger that i did but sure I mean, we I, I, I had a couple of dinners with you as well so of course of yeah, course and, and so, you're gonna have you're gonna have more I'll hold the mic in in uh, camera 
and you can drink the wine, but I'm I'm going to be hitting off that uh, decanter right after you're done, buddy. Oh, That's something right to the on. Well, Todd, thank you so much for coming on. This has been wonderful. Uh, you know, uh, it's gonna, it's hard to express to people listening just, you know, my feelings for you and just how important of a person you are in my life and how good of a friend you are. You've 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 been a supporter of mine. You've been there at my side. Uh, you know, the whole way. And, you know, production managers need that. They need advocates on their crew. They need people to tell them they believe in you. And, you, and you've always been that guy for me. And, uh, and I'm, I'm eternally grateful for your, 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 your friendship and your, you know, confidence you've given me and just, just being there, you know? The, the feeling is 100% mutual. And uh, the lessons along the way that I've learned from how you do business and how you deal with some challenging personalities and, and how you maintain your cool and composure, it's, it's, it's huge. And, uh, and I'm, I'm very grateful to have met you and, and continue to work with you and, and call you my friend. So thank oh, you for oh, good. Thank you having me on this. Thank and you. obviously, it's always a pleasure to, to be around and with you. And it's, it's good to find cool. these well, 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 here's hoping that, you know, Here's hoping we can, in the autumn of this year, we can get to work. I know I, I'm giving it a 50-50 right now. Yeah. You know, that's, that's what I'm thinking. I, I, it's, not, it's not a lock, but, you know, you know Biden's given me a lot of confidence that, that I didn't have a month ago when it came to the vaccine, you know, so. My fingers are crossed. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, as, as I, I would expect most touring crew are. Uh, but whatever happens, man, we'll deal with it. We'll, we'll make it work. I mean, now's been a great time to get healthy and to think through some stuff and evaluate what's important and what's not. And, and we're all still here. We're all still alive and we're all still making it happen. Even if it's a struggle, we're getting stronger through the struggle. So there, there are definitely some good sides, man. Yeah. Oh, and congratulations on your books too, man. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to, I've got a copy of Doll Access, the first one. I, I had no idea I could sell it for 1500 bucks. <laughs> I think it's 150, but the uh, oh, 150. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it. Your, your name is actually in both of those books, so okay, good. I'll, I'll highlight them for you. But send, uh, send, send me a copy of the new one. Love, love to. I see will. It. I will send it this week, buddy. Okay, man. I know. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks Matt. Talk Absolutely. to you guys soon. That was epic. Thanks, man. Take care. Bye. Bye.